0: So the first reading is from uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter two, verse one to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, that we should walk with them. Word of the Lord.
1: Almighty Father, uh, Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins. And you made him alive. Alive to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, uh, we need that same power. It's the same power that You have poured out on those, on every single person who really knows you. And some of us now are in places where actually we don't really know you, but we kind of want to. Pour out your spirit upon us now and make us see Jesus and give us spiritual life. And those of us who do know you and yet, it's hard sometimes, and it's, we struggle sometimes, and our hearts are cold sometimes, and sometimes we cannot see as we want to see, and sometimes you're obscure, and so we need your grace moment by moment and breath by breath, and so will you pour out your Holy Spirit anew and afresh in us, and will you do so now? Lord, we need your grace now, and so let us hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Um, keep your eyes l- looking there at the Ephesians reading. Um, we're going to be talking about grace today. <clears throat> uh, our passage is all about grace. And uh, here's the thing about our reading today: it is one of the most foundational readings in the in the entire Bible. Um, of course, even as I mention that, um, I'm aware that that pastors always pastors exaggerate a little, don't we? Um, It's called homiletical hyperbole. Um, Homiletical just is a fancy word for preaching. Um, However, this, I'm confident I'm right. Um, Here's why I say that. If you you don't grasp this reading or if you don't grasp the reality that this reading uh, is communicating, then your Christianity will be dead, like totally flatline dead. And, and here's why. Grace, the idea of grace that this reading is describing, um, the story of grace, the experience of grace. Grace is the thing that animates all of the Christian life. It That is to say, grace is the life of real Christianity. Grace, Paul tells us, takes us in uh, spiritual death and transforms us or calls us forth or resurrects us and gives us uh, real spiritual life. Now, as I say that, that's kind of abstract. So let me try to make this a little bit more concrete. If you look at verse 10, we're going to talk about this more next week, but if you look at verse 10, uh, Paul says that God creates us in Christ for good works. So At least that means that like good works, uh, comprehensive moral transformation, obeying God, loving God, serving God, serving the world. That's part of why we're here. That's part of God's goal in saving us. However, Christian good works, Christian moral transformation is incoherent. It makes no sense at all without grace. In fact, Christian good works and Christian moral transformation is impossible without grace. Like Jesus, for instance, uh, one of his famous commands is that he says, um, everybody, you need to love your enemies. Now, when we hear that, hopefully, that sounds really good. Like, that sounds like a positive thing. Like, wouldn't it be great in our world now if a lot of people love their enemies? That'd be brilliant. The trouble with loving your enemies and that command is that loving your enemies sounds brilliant right up until you, the moment when you actually have an enemy that you need to love. Then it's terrible. And, and here's the – in fact, it's impossible. It doesn't make any sense to love your enemies. And it's basically impossible to pull off that command. Except when you grasp grace. When you grasp the reality of our first reading, then when you really grasp grace or when you internalize grace deeply into your life, then loving your enemies, actually that will make sense. Even in the concrete realities, when you're facing somebody whom you have good reason to hate, not only will it begin to make sense, but also you will have a desire. You will aspire to love your enemies. And the difference Between loving your enemies, being totally incoherent, not making any sense, and being impossible, and and it becoming something that is logical, rational, and something you desire, the difference is your experience of grace. Or another example, Uh, when Jesus calls us to follow him, one of the things that that implies is um, that when you start to follow Jesus, you surrender the right to determine right and wrong for yourself um you just give up that right you say jesus that's that's your responsibility now it's not that you turn off your brain but you do surrender your will you you surrender the deepest decisions of your life to jesus christ now once again without grace surrendering your will to somebody else is crazy maybe toxic but once grace and all that grace means lands in your life and you experience the shift from going from spiritual death to spiritual life. Then surrendering your life and your deepest will to Jesus Christ will both make sense to you mentally and it will also be something you desire. You will once again aspire to surrender your will, foundational will to Jesus Christ. My, the thing I'm trying to say is that grace animates the Christian life. And Christianity without grace is spiritual death. So today, we're going to look at the first part of this reading. Next week, we'll look at the second part of the reading. And what we're going to do is today, we're going to ask, why do we need grace? What is grace? What difference does it make? Okay? First of all, why do we need grace? Take a look at verse 1. And basically, listen, Paul's answer to the question, why do we need grace, is shocking. He says, we need grace because we are spiritual corpses we're spiritually dead without it verse 1 and you were dead he's speaking to christians he's speaking to gentile christians he's reminding them of their past he says you were sp- you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked now when when i read that verse um, there's a little part of me that wants to push back on paul and say wait a minute paul homiletical hyperbole who are you calling spiritually dead I'm not spiritually dead. I want to say, yes, I know. Nobody's perfect, Paul. Um, But I know a lot of people who are worse than me. And so I, I don't think it's that I'm not really spiritually dead. I may be spiritually flabby, out of shape, something like that, but I'm not spiritually dead. Now, I don't know if that's your response, but I want you to look at Paul's analysis. What he says is, he says, your behavior Your trespasses and your sins is evidence of a deeper reality, something Paul calls spiritual death. And there is a root cause, actually, three root causes for our spiritual death. In verses two and three, Paul gives three root causes of spiritual death. He says, first of all, there's our environment, the world around us. Secondly, there's a foreign influence, which is the devil. And thirdly, there's our own hearts. Now, start with the third uh, root cause of spiritual death, our hearts. Take a look at verse 3. Paul says, we are spiritually dead because, we, quote, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, keep your eyes on that verse, okay? Paul is making a big claim. On the one hand, he's claiming that all of us humans are a complex bundle of desires, right? But you can identify with that, can't you? right? Like if I look at my heart, I'm a complex bundle of desires, right? Um, Sometimes they're going this way, sometimes they're going that way, and probably you are too. But the thing that Paul's claiming is not just that we are complex bundles of desire, but rather that complex bundle of desire in our lives, those are not healthy desires. That complex bundle of desire does not en masse Uh, lead us in a way that promotes life. In fact, that complex bundle of desire, claims Paul, within me, it tends to be toxic. It tends to be self-destructive. Now, some of the people on this call are doctors. I am not. I don't know anything about medicine. However, so um, uh, welcome to my ignorance. But I understand that the cancer is when our body's cells stop replicating in a healthy manner and start replicating in a destructive manner. I'm not sure if that's right, but just go with me. That's what Paul is saying is happening in our, des- in our desires, our passions. These passions and these desires are, are replicating themselves in an unhealthy way, and they end up eating us from the inside out, and they end up consuming people around us as well. Now, I want to be careful here, okay? Paul is not saying that desire itself is wicked. In fact, holiness and transformation and grace is going to transform those desires and make them wonderful, And Paul is not saying that our bodies are bad. The whole of the Bible is clear that the human body is a good thing. But Paul is saying that our desires and our passions within us have been twisted so that we have a tendency to prefer ourselves over against everything else. Now, to understand this, think about your favorite narcissist. Don't we all have a favorite narcissist? Might be somebody that you enjoy hating. I don't know. Um, when you think about a narcissist, uh, everything's about them, right? Like everything revolves around them. They're the center of their solar system and everything orbits around them. Now, do you think the narcissist's selfish desires, do you think those are good things? Do you think they lead in a healthy direction? Of course they don't lead in a healthy direction. They consume them and they consume everybody around them. And very often the narcissist doesn't even know that that's happening. But the narcissistic desires wreck everything around them. Well, Paul's saying sin or spiritual death works the same way. And I can imagine somebody saying, hey, are you calling me a narcissist? To which I respond, no, Paul's calling you spiritually dead. And just like a narcissist is very often the last person to know that they're a narcissist, somebody who's spiritually dead or somebody who's in sin is very often the last person to know it. Now, I know that's awkward, but let's keep on going. So there's an internal heart cause for spiritual death, but then there's also an environmental cause. You see in verse two, uh, Paul says, we follow the course of this world. What does that mean? Well, you can think of it this way. Humans, as we already said, are bundles of narcissistic desires, but we are also herd animals. And therefore we gather into groups. And because all of us are filled with these Self oriented desires. When you put all of us together, we have a tendency to create whole societies that normalize uh, everyone's pursuit of those selfish desires. And as we create whole societies that normalize those desires, we end up creating societies that are designed to reinforce the power of those desires and their hold upon us. And that's why in the Bible, uh, when the Bible talks about the word world, not always, but often, it means all of humanity living for self and running from God. We build whole environments that promote spiritual death rather than spiritual life. And we all follow the crowd and the crowd keeps telling us our selfish desires and our narcissistic desires, are sin is normal. So there's a heart cause, there's an environmental cause, but then thirdly, there's also... Foreign intervention by the devil. Look at verse two. He says, "We follow the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience." He's talking about the devil, and I realize that some of us struggle to believe the devil is real. The devil kind of seems like a mythological creature, partially because of the way the devil is sometimes represented or misrepresented uh, in in popular culture and things like that. But I ask you to consider this: you don't have to believe in the devil to be captive by the devil. And one of the ways that the devil works in us is by feeding and encouraging our addiction to our self-oriented desires and whispering in our hearts that it's all normal. Let me read you something. Uh, About 1,600 years ago, uh, there was a North African called Augustine, uh, and he was reflecting on his own experience of spiritual death, and he wrote this. He said, quote, I was held back from Christ, not in fetters clamped upon me by someone else, but by my own will, that's going to be important, which had the strength of iron chains. The enemy, that is to say the devil, held my will in his power, and from it he made a chain and he shackled me, for my will was perverse and lust or desire had grown from it. And when I gave in to lust, habit was born. And when I did not resist the habit, it became a necessity. This was my chain. And it held me fast in the duress of enslavement. Now, what's interesting there is, did you catch this? The devil, or the enemy, as he calls him, held Augustine captive But Augustine was not being held captive against his will. The devil was using his will to hold him captive. It was Augustine's own selfish desire. It was Augustine's own narcissistic will that the devil used to hold him captive. And one of the things that that means is that Augustine was not simply an innocent victim. Rather, Augustine was deeply complicit with his own captivity. He was an active participant in his own spiritual death. And that's why in verse three, and this is going to get scary, in verse three of our reading, Paul says that when we're spiritually dead, we are by nature children of wrath. Now, like I said, this gets scary. What that means is that God looks at us and God sees that not only are we, uh, we're not innocent captives of the devil, but rather we are complicit and active participants in our own captivity. That is to say our spiritual death, we're culpable for it. And that spiritual death leads to terrible, terrible wreckage in this world. And so God looks at us and God in his justice is hostile towards us because justice is always hostile towards evil. We are under God's wrath. And God's wrath doesn't mean that he's flying off the handle. It means that his his wrath is his settled, just hostility against evil. And this explains why we need grace. And it explains why we need grace urgently. Because our hearts, Emmanuel, love to run from God and live for self. And we live in a world that encourages it, normalizes it, and the devil promotes it. And we stand before a God who is hostile towards us for it. And the wider vision of scripture tells us that one day God will quarantine all those who remain in spiritual death so that we cannot perpetrate our narcissism on this world anymore. And that permanent quarantine is called hell. And that's why we need spiritual life. That's why we need grace, urgently. Emmanuel, I don't know if you remember this, but a few weeks ago we said um, that God gives himself to us right in the middle of the wreckage of this world. Do you remember that? Well, that's what we said. And and several times over the course of the last few months, we've, we've made the point that, that 2020 is the perfect year to meet God because God introduces himself regularly right when we are surrounded by the mess of this world. Now, the same is true here, except it's more intense. God gives himself to us only when we see or precisely when we see the depth of our spiritual death. It's only when you can see that you're spiritually dead that you're ready to see God's grace. God's grace will always stay remote and distant and theoretical until it comes home to you that our deepest desires tend to drive us away from God and make us run headlong toward our own self-destruction. We've got to come to terms with our spiritual death. Augustine had to come to terms with his spiritual death. He spent years running from it. Paul had to come to terms with his spiritual death. That's what the second reading was all about. Jesus had to confront him. And you and I, Emmanuel, need to come to terms with our own spiritual death. Without God, we are spiritually dead and we will normalize it, and we'll think we're okay when we are not. And when we come to see uh, the depth of our spiritual death and the urgency of our need, then there's a beautiful thing that happens. That's when you get to see that the grace of God is a flood of resurrecting grace, resurrecting love. Why do I say that? Look at verse four. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Emmanuel, I don't know any better description of grace than that verse. Grace. What is grace? Here it is. Grace is God's love for his enemies. God's love for the people to whom he is hostile because of our culpability in the evil of this world. Grace is God's love for his enemies. And he shows us that love by giving spiritual life and resurrecting spiritually dead people. Let me illustrate from Augustine again. So I'm going to read a famous passage. Some of you will have heard this before, but I want you to listen for Augustine's powerlessness over himself. And then the moment God's grace breaks into his life, listen, quote, Augustine again, I felt that I was still the captive of my sins, and in my misery, I kept weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house, whether it was the voice of a boy or girl, I cannot say, but again and again, it repeated the refrain, take it and read it, take it and read it, and I stemmed my flood of tears, and I stood up telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. So I hurried back and seized my edition of St. Paul's letters and I opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell, which said, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but this is important, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so, for in an instant as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Now, Augustine starts dead in his sins, unable to escape, but then God intervenes. You see, dead people can't raise themselves. And spiritually dead people can't give themselves spiritual life. God has to intervene. And God loves Augustine despite his sin. And God gives Augustine spiritual life right into his spiritual death. But did you catch this? This is crucial. The turning point is when Augustine reads the words, put on Christ. That's the key. Why is that the key? Why is putting on Christ the key to spiritual life? Well, look back at our reading. Do you notice uh, in verses five and six, Paul says with Christ like three times, and he says in Christ once. What does that mean? What's the importance of being with Christ? This is very important. Real Christianity, Emmanuel, is not simply church membership. It's not religious membership. You can be a baptized member of a church and be spiritually dead. In fact, it happens all the time. Like for instance, you might become convinced that like moral behavior and maybe even religious practice is like really good for you. Um, and, And so you might really put your effort into living rightly, but secretly underneath all your outward effort It's very easy for us to still be motivated by that bundle of narcissistic desires. It might just be that that bundle of narcissistic desires deep within our hearts say, you know what, right now there's a tactical advantage to being religious or acting religious or acting morally, therefore act morally, but there's no real life change. It's just spiritual death, uh, uh, marshaling its efforts to present itself well. It's marketing and it's spiritual death, marketed as religion. The apostle Paul lived that way for years until our second reading when he met Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can change that. Why? Well, Jesus is the one person who was never spiritually dead. His desires always preferred God. Uh, Jesus was the opposite of a narcissist. He always swam against the tide of this world. He was tempted by the devil, but he always resisted. Jesus is the only person who's always been spiritually alive. And here's the thing, when we surrender to Jesus Christ, like the Apostle Paul did in the second reading, like Augustine did, what happens is God takes our sin and all his hostility against our culpability for our spiritual death. He takes all our sin and he kills it with Christ when Jesus dies upon the cross. But then it's not just that. God then takes Jesus's spiritual life and all the privileges and reward that goes with Jesus, and he gives that to us free of charge, and the result is breathtaking. Look at verse 6. Do you see how Paul says, God raises us up and seats us with Christ in heaven? What in the world does that mean? It means this. Don't miss this. The image is that God, so to speak, seats us with Christ on Christ's throne in heaven. What? I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I know. It means that God gives us Jesus's dignity. Even though we deserve only shame. Now, please just consider that for a minute. We start off deserving God's hostility because we're totally complicit, even though we're also captive. We end up enjoying Jesus's dignity. We end up being royalty in God's throne room and we've done nothing to deserve it. And the only way that can happen is when we are joined to Jesus Christ. What Christ is by nature, he makes us to be by grace. Now, Emmanuel, if you could internalize the dignity given to you by Jesus Christ when you became a Christian, it will transform your identity and your behavior. Why do I say that? Well, remember that what you do always flows out from who you are, right? Behavior always follows identity. Grace, when you are joined to Jesus and you, and your, your sin is washed away and instead you bear the dignity of God himself, of Jesus himself, grace changes our identity. Jesus's dignity becomes our identity. Grace changes who you are at your fundamental level. And we're no longer simply a bundle of our own desires. Now we share Christ's dignity. And when that identity gets deep down within us, then all of a sudden obeying Jesus makes all the sense in the world because it's in line with who we have, become, who we have been made to be. Grace changes our identity and therefore grace changes our behavior. And that dignity that we gain It's a dignity that will stretch on for all eternity in the future. That's what verse 7 is about. Verse 7 says that for all eternity, God is going to hold us up as monuments of his mercy. Your whole eternity will be about displaying the mercy of God in giving you spiritual life. That's your identity. That's who you really are if you belong to Jesus Christ. But not only do we gain Jesus's dignity, we also gain Jesus's desires. Verse 4 we are made alive together with Christ. And here you need to think a little bit like a, like a blood transfusion, except it's not a blood transfusion. It's a desire transfusion. Remember, Jesus's desires are perfect. They're not selfish. They're dominated by love for God, love for other people. Our desires are a complex bundle of narcissism often. But when God joins us to Jesus... Part of what he does is the Holy Spirit takes Jesus's desires and then transfuses them into our souls, not all at once, but little by little so that the more we rest on God's grace, the more that screaming narcissist in our chest begins to quiet down, and we find ourselves turning to look at Jesus first with trust. We trust him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that trust matures to gratitude, gratitude for all that Jesus has given us, and then that gratitude matures to love. We love him more than we love ourselves, more than we love this world, and therefore we love everything in this world, far more than we ever had previously. And then that love bursts forth in joy. And it's the first taste of heaven. And as that joy breaks upon our souls, not only does radical obedience to Jesus begin to make sense to our brains, but actually you want to, you aspire to give away your life for Jesus Christ, for he has given away his life for you. Emmanuel, that's spiritual life. And everything that's less than that is death. So, Emmanuel, is grace your life? How does it become your life? How do we get grace? Well, listen, remember, dead people don't raise themselves. And spiritually dead people can't lift a finger to produce spiritual life. Only God raises the dead. And therefore, grace must always be a miraculous intervention by God in your life. It's got to be a miracle. And that's why it has to be received by faith. Faith is trust in someone stronger than you to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Receive by faith. And one of the things that that means is that we need to surrender. We need to practice not trusting ourselves. We need to surrender ourselves. We need to surrender, for instance, our desires. Uh, Your complex bundle of narcissistic desires will tell you that they define you. They will tell you that they will lead you to fulfillment. They don't define you, and they won't lead you to to fulfillment. Surrender them to God. And then surrender your commitment to your own innocence. The world wants to normalize our narcissism. The devil wants to whisper in your your ear that you're fine as you are. Um, But we aren't fine as we are. Give up and surrender your commitment to your own innocence. And then having surrendered your desires and surrender your innocence, go to Jesus Christ. Some of you, this needs to be the first time you've ever gone to Jesus Christ. For others of us, this is the practice of Christian life and growth. Go to Jesus Christ and surrender yourself to him again. And what you will find... Is you will find Jesus upon the cross taking your sins upon himself, but then you will also see Jesus Christ reaching you down, grabbing you by the hand, pulling you up, not just to the cross, but to his heavenly throne. And there seated upon with him upon the throne, seated with him in the heavenly places, you will find him transforming your identity and transfusing into your soul desires, his own desires and you will kneel before him, surrendering all that you are to the true king. And that's where you will find yourself capable to love more than you ever loved before. And you will be ready for the good works which God has made you to walk in. And we'll pick up that story next week. Amen.